Well, who are you? Who are you really? What does it mean to be your authentic self? What makes you you? What makes you human? These are some of the things we're looking at and trying to answer some questions of why are you? (laughs) Why are you? What are you? Where are you? You ever think of that one? I've been thinking about that one. Where are you? Where have you been placed in your roles, in your responsibilities, in your relationships? When are you? Did you know that you're part of a bigger story than yourself? That there's a time in which God has placed each of us, a time within his story of what he's doing in the world today? So when are you is important. And then ultimately we're going to look at how are you? (laughs) How are you? How are you doing with who God has made you to be? What are you doing with what God has given you and what he's called you to become? These are some of the things we're looking at through this series on authentic identity. You know, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about a sheep again. And the Bible talks about us as sheep. And I don't think that's a compliment and the more you do research, and one of my pastor friends, on his retirement, he went and bought himself some sheep, and I think he's learned more about um, some of the scripture passages now than he ever did studying the Bible by just watching sheep and what sheep are like. And sheep are very interesting. They're, they can't really defend themselves. They don't really have any mechanisms. They're, they're kind of helpless in a lot of ways. They, you know, if it rains and they fall over, they can't get back up again by themselves, and they need a shepherd, and, and they, they just tend, they tend to wander. They, they tend to follow their desires, actually. And so a sheep will literally, you know, see a piece of grass, and they'll munch on it, and they look and up, and they'll see another piece, and they'll, they'll go for that. And they can go from puddle to puddle and, and grass to grass and grass. And, and sheep can wander away simply because they're focused so much on what's just right in front of them, and, and they'll just keep going and going and going. And and it's interesting when you do a little bit of research when uh, sheep aren't shepherded. In other words, if they're penned, there's one, one problem. Sheep will actually die being penned because they'll eat, they'll eat the grass till to, to it kills it, and they actually need food. So sheep are meant to be shepherded. In other words, brought into greener pastures, as we read in Scripture. Brought to clean, clean water. Um, because they'll just wander without that. They, they're really lost. And uh, there was a... There was a a story that I was, I was reading about where uh, it, it was fascinating. It was in Turkey in, uh, about 2005, I think it was. And uh, one, they were getting closer to the edge, and the, the shepherds who were out there, they were leading, they weren't penned in. And the shepherds took a break and decided to have lunch, and they didn't notice, but some of the sheep had got close to the edge of a 15-meter cliff. And, and one of them uh, was eating, and they just went over the edge. And, and all 1,500 went over the edge, one after the other, when they just kept following each other. Uh, the first four, this is kind of, sorry, it's graphic, but the first 400 died, um, but then the rest survived because of, they landed on pillowy soft things below them. But all, all 1,500 of them just, just kept going, following the one after the other, assuming they knew where they were going. Horrific. I think we're like sheep more than we like to admit, and, and God knows that, and so we need a shepherd, and Jesus says he is our shepherd, and, and a sheep follow his voice, and he'll lead them, and I think in society that if you watch people, and you watch society, and how it goes, and culture shifts and goes, we, we simply can follow one step at a time. Our desires are what's in front of us, and we think, well, that looks good, and that looks okay, and that looks good, and eventually we can actually end up going right over the cliff all together without even realizing what's happening to us. And so part of this series is to try to, try to listen to the, the good shepherd, try to listen to truth and the word, and not just follow our desires, not just follow instinct, not just go by what's in front of us or or instinct to follow whatever's leading us, but that will actually listen to the voice of God. And we'll learn to hear his voice and stay away from those edges and the cliffs and the tragedies that can come. 
And so we're going to talk about what does it mean to be in the image of God today. What does that look like for us to be found in the image of God? And so where we're going to look in that, we're going to go first into the book of Genesis, where we're going to spend most of this part of the series when we want to look at what does it mean to be human in God's eyes? What does that actually mean and how does that form identity? And then later on in the series, we're going to transition into what does it mean to be found in Christ as part of humanity redeemed in Christ. So let's just open our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to have your word before us. And that each of us, we, we have time, we can, we can open it and we can read and we can reflect. And then, and then if we desire, we can listen to your voice. That you, you're eager to, to relate to us, you're eager to talk to us and to shape how we see life through your word and through your spirit. And so I pray that you would even do that, begin that work today. And call us to something that is bigger than ourselves today. Who you designed us to be. We look forward to spending this time with you. Amen. Well, why are we? Why are we human? Why are we different? Are we different? Are we different? Why are we different than the rest of creation? So I want to look at Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to put some on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 1 talks about God creating animals and then God shifting and creating us as humans. And I think it's it's significant difference. And so God made the wild animals, Genesis 1.25, according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that moved along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now, I, I just highlight that, and I can't get sidetracked, and which I often do in my ADHD, I really believe. And, uh, but in their kinds is this idea of species, that, that God has, you know, boundaried in the kinds of things he's made. And so there's, you know, there's all kinds of cats, but there's cats. And then there's all kinds of dogs, but there's dogs, right? And there's all kinds of cattle and the cows, but they're, they're, they're cows, um, and so that's what it meant when it said, according to their kinds. Uh, God loves variety, so there's lots of variety, but he has also hemmed them in in kinds. And that's important as we move into the next verses, because he wants to make sure that we don't think that we're just another kind of animal. This is very distinct, that we're not actually just another kind, because he uses completely different language which takes out the whole case of, well, we just came from one kind and evolved to another. Well, this, this verse is right here would say, no, that doesn't happen. True, there's variety, and I believe there's some change in those varieties and uh, culture, I mean, uh, weather and all those things and years and everything else. There's adaptation, I believe on all that, but they're still limited within their kinds. So he moves on and he says, so then, now let us make mankind. Different, separate, in our image. Very, very different. That language has not been spoke up. In our likeness, in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, the rule over is another part. We got to do that another day. It's too much. But we want to focus in, and what does it mean when he said he's going to look at making us, mankind, humankind, it's not people kind, I'm sorry, Trudeau, I can't handle that one, but mankind includes woman and man in all of that for sure, in image and likeness, reflection of who God is, is very distinct, that we're different, we're not just evolved from another kind, but we're distinct, and we're called here to image is a reflection, a likeness, a mirror, a mirror of God, that we would be a mirror of God on earth. I want us to think about that a little bit today. God made a decision to make us unique, reflective of who he is. So God created mankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Male and female created them put a pin in it, we'll have to deal with that another day. There's too much in these short little three verses here. There's a lot. And it drives me nuts that sometimes you'll get politicians out there, and there's a, even this week, there's a lot of, you know, 
image of God in people, and they, they honor image of God in people, but forget the whole verse, you know, the whole verse. There's more to it, and so they'll pick up on a phrase. Because we know instinctively, if, if we say that something's in the image of God, it's important, and it's valuable, and we do want to get to the whole verse, and we will. But today we want to focus on this idea of a reflection of God, an image of God, in the likeness of God. Who is God? And part of who God is can actually be seen in each other, which is interesting. We have a purpose, we have an identity that God designed in the beginning that we would know and that we would understand. The significance and uniqueness, the significance of being made in the image of God is what we want to focus on today. There's a uniqueness of humans in creation. We're distinct and different. Distinct and different. And this, this is, maybe not in this room, but in our culture today, this is a big deal. That saying that humans are different than animals and different than the rest of creation. There's a uniqueness there that we need to talk about and we need to understand. Uh, there's lots of ways that we can look at this. I'm going to focus on a few and I'm going to skim over others. And I, it's only because there's so much in here. So part of the uniqueness is a relational or social dynamic to this. Now, I have animals, I love animals, so you probably hear some things about animals today and question that. I, my screensaver on my phone is my dog. I hate to admit it, but it is. I do love animals. If you get to know me, you'll know I've had all kinds of crazy animals. My wife never wants me to own more than a little tiny lot in the yard. She's afraid I'll make a zoo. I believe when I get to the kingdom that God's going to put me in charge of looking after animals. I do. I I've done sheep for a while here. It's not the best, but a different kinds of animals. I've had, I've had pet alligators someday. You maybe hear about that, and iguanas and snakes and hedgehogs and everything you can imagine. I've always wanted, by the way, a little kangaroo, but my wife won't let me. So I, I love animals, but I believe we're different. And I know animals are relational. My dog loves me the most. Uh, my daughter thinks no, but me the most, for sure. They're relational, but the relational component I'm talking about here is so different. Relational with God. Relational and social, like to be known and to know. That God designed us to have a relationship with himself, that we would know him. So he gave us a capacity that we have to know God. And... To be known by him. And then to know each other in a fully different way than cr the rest of creation. And so that's a part of it for sure. I, and so we know that inside of us we have this deep need to belong. To be connected. That's inside every one of us. We know this again even from, from little babies being born. And, and so one of the things they've changed a little bit even since we had our kids born when our kids were first born, I mean like first born, like instantaneously, they, they were still at the stage of kind of like rushing the kid out and kind of cleaning them up and all those kind of things and checking them out and putting them in the scale and all that kind of stuff. And apparently it was traumatizing for the child. So now they know, wait a minute, the very first thing that a child needs, in the very first moment, new moms will know this, what do they do with the child? Skin on skin. Need connection with the mother, the relational beings. They know that to be bonded and connected in relationship, to feel that they have a place in a social element of connected relationship is vital to the upbringing. Attachment theory is one of the most growing area of understanding of development. We're designed to be attached socially to our parents, to society around us. That sense of identity in our society right now is screaming, can you just accept me? Why is that? A fundamental need that we have to be known by somebody and loved as we're known. It's very fundamental to who we are. God created us that way. That need that we have to be accepted and to be known is so so important. 
It says this in Genesis 2. It's so different than he talks about how he created us. It says, The Lord formed man from the dust of the ground. This becomes really important. The dust of the ground. And then he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils. And the man became a living person. The living person came from the breath of God. And what you're meant to see in that picture is God's desire to be intimate with us. Face to face. God didn't do that with the animals. He just, by his word, there was animals. But with us, he formed and shaped, shaped us face to face, breathed a life into us that's a unique life. There's a uniqueness to that life. That life is a spiritual life. It's the soul. It's eternal. That when God breathes a life into us, it's the life that makes us like him. It's different. It's spiritual in nature. It's eternal in nature. It's soul. It's like God. It's fundamental to our existence that is unique between us and, again, animals. There's no way that that would just randomly evolve one day, that we would have this idea of consciousness, awareness of spirituality and soul and desire for eternal life. It's interesting I keep bringing up animals because I think... I think it demonstrates something. And in 2016, a story caught my eye that just was devastating. And I don't know if you'll remember this, but in 2016, a three-year-old boy was at a zoo in Cincinnati and crawled along the outside of the enclosure and fell into the silverback gorilla's enclosure. If you remember this or not, I remember watching the video it's Hera Manbi, I think was the name of the gorilla, actually. And the gorilla ran over to the boy and picked the boy up like it was a baby gorilla and looked at it with one arm like it would do with a normal gorilla. Upside down with the leg, started dragging the child around its enclosure and hung on to the boy, tossed the boy around, looked at it all different direction of this kid that was, of course, fully functional, alive, breathing, everything else, terrified. For 15 minutes, everyone watched in horror, would the gorilla rip it apart, this poor child, or not? And so the zoo didn't know what to do. The handlers decided that they needed to shoot the gorilla. They were afraid that a tranquilizer would send the gorilla into a spastic reaction and, and freak out and maybe kill this boy. So they shot and killed the gorilla and went and recovered the boy. The, the interesting part of the story was the reaction of society. It was amazing. I don't know if you remember the story or some of the blowback, but most of it came against the mother. The mother of this child, and there was death threats that people were trying to find her, and they wanted her charged, they wanted her to go to jail for the murder of the gorilla. They were threatening her life, she had to get security. The people were outraged. They felt that the boy should have just dealt with whatever was coming. It was silly enough to climb up there, then they could just deal with the consequences. It was crazy. So then it got me thinking, and I started looking up other things, and, and I started understanding this concept of, of our attachment more to animals, that people seem to be more attached to animals than people right now. And there's a, that shift, that understanding of image, and the, and the shift away, if we, if we don't see ourselves different than animals, then of course, like my dog treats me really well, like you know, and me and my wife kind of laugh. When we, when we leave the house sometimes, we'll go up to the dog and, oh, we'll see you later. I'm so sorry. We'll see you in a little bit. Are you going to be okay? And everything else. And we look at each other. Yeah, see you. Okay. And we walk out the door. And we're like, well, we're kind of messed up. Like, we really treat our dog this way. And we look at each other. Yeah, but our dog never talks back, never, you know, corrects us, never says anything bad, just is happy to see us. And so in, in the world, though, if you, if you look at animals, you would go, well, yeah, but animals have never done me wrong. 
And so there's been a shift towards this. And, and so one of the, the studies I came across was this study. And, and don't answer the question out loud around your neighbors because we don't want people to be divided in half in the room. But it was a question of this. If, if your dog and a stranger were in a situation where they both were about to die and you could only save one, who would you save? They did a drowning scenario, they did a buses coming scenario, they did a bunch of different, uh, in, a, in a burning building scenario, your dog and a stranger, your dog and a stranger, what would you do, what would you do? Over 60% said immediately, my dog. And then only like 20% said the person, and the other 20% were too scared and said, I don't know, I'd have to see. And they started asking questions, well, tell me more about the stranger, <laughs> a little scary. Here's the top responses. I looked up the survey, and it's the top comments they put in after the survey. If it were my dog or a human, sorry, human, I'm saving my dog first. My dogs trust me to keep them safe. Their loss would leave a hole in my heart that wouldn't mend. People die every day. It's sad, but if there's a choice between saving a person I do not know or a dog who I love, the dog wins. Next person, I have a moral obligation to care for my dog, protect my pet since the day I adopted and tamed it. In the other hand, the same person, I don't owe anything to a total stranger. Another person, is a stranger rich? Do I know if there's going to be a big reward for me if I put some effort into saving them? I don't care about the stranger. I care about my dog, though. So I'll always save the dog first. And this is where the honesty comes out in this one. The fact that one is a human and the other is a dog doesn't matter to me. What is important is what I get out of it. If I save my dog, I get to keep my dog. I've invested years of time, money, and effort into him. Why do I bring all this up? Well, A, it's scary. But there's another thing going on here that I think is very important for this conversation today. Is where do we base value and worth, importance, identity, belonging, is it from what we feel like on the inside? Is it our desire for self, our selfish desires that guide us every day? Or is there something larger than ourselves or a compass that guides us in our behaviors and thoughts and our actions? And I think this is the crux of the actual issue. What is it that is guiding us when it comes to value of others, taking even care of creation or not? Is this something that just comes from how we feel? Do I look inside to reflect on what is true in the world? Or do I allow something outside of myself, the voice of God, to guide me in my decisions and behavior towards what is bigger than how I feel. It's a massive, massive issue. So the pet versus a stranger just highlights this. It just highlights the dilemma that we face. Another uniqueness of human and creation is not only its relational social in order to engage with God and others, but spiritual with eternal. But also there's this idea of a morality in which we inherit, this idea of will or choice, which comes with it this other concept of accountability for decisions we make. That inherently what's different about us is we would all recognize, everyone out there recognizes that there's something about us that has a decision-making ability in which we should be accountable for. So no one comes upon a lion who just tore apart a gazelle and gives it a lecture about making better choices, right? We just know that that's just, that's instinct. No one comes to the bear who attacks the hiker and says, hey, you know, do better, do better. 
What we say to the hiker is, look, do better. You know whose land this is. You know whose trail this is. It's the bears. So you do better. You know better. We know that we are different in that we are accountable for the decisions we make, that we have choice, we have freedom, and there's something that we're able to look at each other and actually our judgment of each other, as Paul talked about in the book of Romans we studied, dictates that we agree that we should be accountable for choice. So what's the application of all this? The application of the uniqueness of humans that we're seeing is that there's inherent value and dignity in every human being. That if we allow scripture to shape our, our thinking around humanity and who we are, that in the end we'll understand that there's just value and dignity for everyone. So therefore, racism and discrimination has absolutely no place in somebody who follows the word of God, who follows Jesus in their life. It just doesn't exist there. I think there's a case maybe of selfism that's actually more rampant right now that we're relabeling as racism. I think there is some racism there, but most of what we're hearing about in the media right now is so, we know, over top, crazy over the top. And I don't know if it's about racism, it's selfism, which is if I don't get something out of someone else and it doesn't suit my best interests, then I'm against that person. And, and race is irrelevant, gender is irrelevant. It's, it's about me and my center of value on someone else is does it benefit me? And that's really the heart of our issue in society. So we have a tension in our society. Where do we find our values from? If we don't see that we are created in the image of God, and that others are created in the image of God, then where does morality come from? Where does our value system come from? It can only come from self. So what else is significant about being made in the image of God is this idea of, of having purpose or meaning. And the problem when you have a theory of life that just it just happened. Somehow we just exist today. There is no thought behind it. There's no creator behind it. There's no meaning behind it. There's no purpose behind it. How do you then function throughout life and find meaning and purpose? If we're just random, then where does that come from? And so we looked at last week a little bit. Then, then the only answer is, well, then meaning only comes from what I can get out of it. And so we get on a pursuit of life of trying to surround ourselves with things that make us feel good to find that fulfillment in which we read, of course, in Scripture that is not able to be found outside of a relationship with God. But being made in the image of God means there's some purpose and there's a meaning for your existence today. That it matters that you're here. That you're not an accident. That the life that was breathed into you by God is for a reason. Regardless of how you think you got here today, whether your parents planned you or not, the fact that you are alive and breathing today and have life in you demonstrates God's initiation in that existence that you have a will that you have a soul that you are aware that you have a desire for a connection a relationship demonstrates God was involved in your existence well why does that matter well it means everything to those that don't know why they exist today What does this look like? Well, our purpose and meaning then, if we're made in the image of God, we're made, meant to reflect God. We're meant for others to see God in us. That means then that, in a sense, that our existence today, if we are spiritual in nature, and we are eternal in nature, that we are born of God. We're born of God. Now, 
there's a central theme throughout all of Scripture that testifies to this, and that is children of God. God's design is that we would be children of God. And so we see in creation story how God was up and close and personal with Adam. That he breathed the life into Adam. But what the psalmist says is so amazing. He doesn't just say, well, that's just happened one time in history. And one time in history, God was up and close when someone was being formed. Because he was in Adam. We can see that in Genesis. But what we read in the psalmist was, not only did that happen with Adam, but in the psalmist, he says, God did that with you too. Let's read it in Psalm 139. Verse 1 starts with, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. I didn't want to miss that verse. Because that is one of our core identities of existence. That God knows us. That we can be known by God and we can know God. That's a massive deal. So he goes on, this is how much God knows me. So he describes it in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. What's your inmost being? Who you really are. <laughs> and we all know that because our world today is struggling with who I am on the inside, right? Who am I on the inside? And so I look on the outside and I say, well, I don't, I don't necessarily recognize myself on the outside all the time. Some of you look in the mirror and you go, wow, that's not how I picture myself. I don't realize how, how I've aged, maybe, for example. I always look in, my, in the mirror and I go, wow, yeah. I guess it really is graying hair. I mean, I don't feel that way. And I'll catch a glimpse of myself, and I'm like, ah, that's not really how I feel on the inside. For sure, there's moments like that. But my inside is very, very different. My innermost being is, is created by God. He knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame, my frame, that's my outer, right? My frame also wasn't hidden from you when I was made. It shows here God is doing two things. He's, he's understanding you have a frame to you. You have a body as well. But he's knit together your inmost being. And I was woven together, together. The two come together in the depths of the earth. The depths of the womb. Your eyes, well, they saw me unformed. That was before I had form and shape. You still saw me. And all of those days were ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. So when did God know you? Before you were formed. He knew you. He planned you. How precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast is the sum of them? If I were to count them, and I talked about this last week, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. God is up close and personal, not just in the story of Genesis with Adam, but he was up close and personal with every one of you. And he knew you and formed you, both in your inmost being of who you are and your frame. Both of those he cares about and both of those he understood. And he takes credit for that. And so I would suggest to you, I would suggest to you, that in every creation of a human in the womb, there's two parts. There's the, the physical flesh part that your parents are putting together. But the inmost being is where God is actively involved in who you are. The real you. When do you become eternal, living, spiritual, and soul? Scripture would say, in the womb. In the womb, when he saw you. I believe God's up close and personal, and he breathes life into us in the womb. 
Isaiah 43 says, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. And I want you to know today, my heart's desire, and I've said this at the beginning of the series, is that those of us who claim to follow Jesus, who want to live God-honoring lives, this is for us. Of course, there's implications for everyone in the world, but for us, I think we're needing to call together the sheep. We need to call together, and we need to bring us together, and we need to say, look, do we know who we are? Do we know who each other are? Because we better get it right first here. We better be sure of it here before we go out there. And so I think God is saying, let's bring everybody together who claim me as God. And look, this is what he's saying to every one of you in the room if you claim him to be your God. I made you for glory. He made you to reflect himself. That's what that means. It was I who created you. And so every time you have an enemy that comes around you and says, you don't have purpose, you don't have meaning, you don't make sense, your inside's different than your outside, for us in the room we say, no, this says God created us for a reason. He put us together. There's purpose and there's meaning in that. And that becomes our sure foundation. We've got to be really careful with time today. Because I could keep going, I think. I'm worried about that. I'm going to give you two quick things that I think is important. What was the first temptation given to Adam that we know of? What, where did it come? Where Adam was attacked was his sense of value and worth and identity. Who are you in relationship to God? You know what he said to Adam? God wants you to not be like him. That it was the bold-faced lie because Adam and Eve were created already to be like God. Do you realize that? That they were created in his image. They were created already standing out from creation to reflect him. And he comes along and says, God doesn't want you to be like him. And if you're going to become anything in this world, if you're going to understand the world around you, you have to be independent of God. You have to choose your own way and you will understand who you really are. You will know good and evil. You will become like him. He's afraid you're going to become like him. God is not afraid you'll become like him. He made you to be like him. Is the enemy that wants to distract you to think that you're less than who you are, not God? What did he do to Jesus? Do you know Jesus had to go through the exact same temptation? The three phrases in Jesus' temptation that we have written down to us, the enemy starts with this phrase. If, if you really are, the son of God. If you really are who you think you are, if, the root of all temptation that we deal with is this. Do we believe who God said we were designed to be? Do we trust him? Or will we want to carve out our own destiny and our own path forward, our own purpose, our own kingdom, our own meaning, our own independence? And so the enemy came to Jesus and said, you don't have to become this, this amazing thing with God. You, you don't do that. You can do this on your own. You can, you can become great. You can be independent of God. And you can still find who you are. The enemy is the one who wants us to be confused about who we are. Because if we start to doubt who we are, we will start to look for our definition and defining our value and our worth outside of what God provides. The enemy hates creation, hates humanity, because we reflect the creator. So what is the significance of this 
purpose and meaning and value being made in the image of God, while it's reflecting God's image on earth, it means that we are a child of God. That we are a child of his. That he actually is the father of our life. <laughs> He's our father. And, and we see this all throughout, all throughout the Bible story. This is the same theme. And, and the enemy comes in and sin tarnishes and, and mars us for sure. Sin nature mars us. So we don't perfectly reflect. We don't reflect who God is in the world. I, I don't. And, and, and people kept falling and making mistakes and getting caught up. And so every time we try to do life our own way, we don't reflect God. Because God is a servant actually. <laughs> And so when we choose self, we mar who God is. God isn't about himself, actually. And, and so we have this concept, and so we see God constantly pulling people aside who, who desire to be like him, and he pulls Noah aside and says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to reflect myself. I'm going to use you to reflect myself. And then we see that go sideways after a while and so he he pulls aside different people at different times and he pulls aside Moses to take this people out and, and God says okay you're the people I'm gonna have reflect me I, I'm choosing you to be the people that mirror me to the world I need you to live completely differently than you're thinking I need you to suppress all these other this this desires and this sin and this moral behavior and I need you to reflect me and here's how you can do that and of course they mess it up and they can't pull it off. And so finally he brings Jesus, his son, to truly be able to reflect who he is in the world. Why? I never, I honestly, I never really thought much why it was so important. Why was it so important that Mary was a virgin? I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not that dumb. I mean, I know it's important, but... But it was like, oh, this was, this was just like Adam. Of course, it clicked together. In other words, the God, God took Adam, right, and formed him and shaped him physically and spiritually. And he was able to do that with Jesus. And so Jesus didn't have in him the, the, the outward structure, the flesh, the tendencies of those flesh marred. He didn't have that because God took his son and placed him in to marry, to be his child that's set apart from the nature of sin that was in the world, permeating the world. His desire was that his creation in us as humans, we would reflect who he was. And so Jesus came and he, he said things that made people pretty, pretty upset. He said things like, me and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the disciples say, but can you just show us? Can you show us the Father? And he's like, I've been with you this whole time. Why do you still ask to see the Father? I am a perfect mirror and representation of the Father. And now in Christ, in Christ, we also can mirror and reflect. Because he's dealt with our sin nature. He's purified us in his eyes. And he wants and desires for us to mirror to the world what does he look like. I want to give some landing points before I forget and move on because they're significant and important. So first of all is this. Reflecting God's image means this application is this. Our children are God's children. If he breathed life into our children in the womb, then they're God's children entrusted to us. It's why we do dedication, baby dedication. You know we do a baby dedication? We bring them up here and we say these things. These parents recognize that this child is a gift from God, that they have been entrusted to care for this child, but this child is ultimately to reflect God's glory. That's why we do that. We acknowledge that this child would not exist without God. This child is eternal. This child has a soul and exists for God's glory. And so we bring him before God and rededicate this child. And we say, we will do our best to bring them up to learn about who you are. That's why we do that. 
And if that is true, if every child is actually a child born of God in the womb, then what does that say about protecting unborn life in the womb? It means it's vital. And it means all the arguments that you hear that the sheep keep listening to and thinking, that doesn't sound bad, that doesn't sound bad, and will end up right over the cliff, actually fall away. This idea of, well, it's my body, therefore it's my choice. The thing is, though, this is your body that houses God's choice. God's choice of this person to reflect who he is in the world. This individual that has been shaped and formed and had life breathed into them to become like him. And taking that life is not actually our right. It doesn't belong to us. Children are created in the womb with partnership of God in their life. Jeremiah 1, 5, I don't have time to go through all the verses, says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. I knew you. I knew who you were. It says in Romans 8, and some people get confused, I think, in this, and I know some people don't like that I keep bringing this verse up. And it's just one of them, but it says this, in Romans 8, 29, for, for those God foreknew, he predestined. I have no problem with that verse because I know he foreknew you all. I know he foreknows people in the womb. I know that his heart desires to predestine them to bring him glory. And for those that's predestined to bring him glory, he calls them. He calls them to glorify him. And those who respond to the call, he actually glorifies them. It's an amazing work that God is up to in our world. Jumping a little bit all over because of time, but I want to say this. Again, this has implications for our society, but I think it's first for our room. Right now in Canada, we are, I, I think it could be the worst country in the world that has absolutely no rights whatsoever for an unborn child. There's no limitations, zero Abortion can happen at any time up to the nine month, up to five minutes before birth without any ramifications whatsoever. By definition, in Canada law, they are not a human being. And it's sad because you can read all kinds of stories of a 20-month-year-old, uh, sorry, 24-week pregnancy, a lady who was, was shot and ended up going to the hospital and they realized the baby was injured performed a C-section, and tried to save the baby's life. At 24 weeks, the baby died, and then that person was charged with murder. Because as long as that infant gets out of the womb, even at 24 weeks, it now has rights. But another mom, at nine months pregnancy, can go through a horrific abuse experience, and the infant can die in the womb, and that person cannot be charged any harm against that unborn child, only against the mother. We, this is where we're at. How, do we, how did we get there? We're the only kind of, there's zero rights and zero limitations. By following each piece of grass one at a time until we go over that cliff. When you cannot see a difference between your dog and the person sitting next to you. When you only see what is in it for you. What am I going to get out of this? What is the cost for me? What is it going to happen to me as a result of saving an individual or not saving an individual? And if our only decision making comes down to me, we go over the cliff. We in this room need to know who we are. Be grounded to pass on to the next generation and the next generation. I'm not a fan, i got to wrap up, I'm not a fan of the pickets and going out there and screaming at other people because it's for those who are called by his name that have to get this right. It's the church that has to get it right. It's our generations that come after us that have to know this is true. It's your kids that have to learn where their value is. And those kids have to learn. 
This didn't happen quickly. This happened because there was a relational gap where there was a couple generations who never knew who they were. They didn't know that God formed them and God cared for them in the womb. That's how we got here. And for us to turn things around, it first has to start with those who are called by his name to get it right. And unfortunately, there are people who believe that they're called by his name, who want to follow Jesus, who still struggle with this. And I don't know exactly when God breathes life of eternal life into them. I believe it's at conception. You could argue all you want. That's fine. But do we believe that God is at work in the child, and it's God's child first? First is first. Is this about us, or is this about God? Is this about reflecting him, or is this about finding who I want to be? That's the identity series. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I think about those today, and I know there's people in the room who have struggled, have been hurt, have been harmed. I know there's those in the room who they want to love and they want to accept, and I know we're called to do that. We're called to represent you well. And you are a God who does accept and loves and forgives and is gracious and kind, but you are also a God who stands with truth. So I pray you teach us, would, for us to do this well, what it means is we have to be sheep that listen to your voice. Because if it was left to us on our own, we will get lost. The predators will come and destroy. And you said you would be our shepherd, that you would guide, that you'll protect, and you will lead us to where you want us to go. So we pray as this church that you would lead us where we need to go. So we surrender our desires, we surrender ourselves to you and to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.